Why is that world-famous service at Tokyo restaurants starting to slip? Why does the US dominate a Chinese city? And why doesn't Southeast Asia's largest economy and largest country want to lead? These are some of the questions that a couple of weeks in Asia raised. They aren't just quirky or existential, they illuminate some of the most pressing questions in society and economics today. Welcome to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss. I cover global economics for Bloomberg View. Helping me sort through these ideas is guest host Joe Weisenthal, an executive editor at Bloomberg and co-host of Benchmark's sibling podcast, Odd Lots. Joe, it's great to have you here, and thanks for helping me sift through some of these uh, impressions and experiences from my trip. First of all, I'm really jealous that you uh, just traveled through Asia because I love. I haven't spent that much time in Asia. I've been to Hong Kong a little bit, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore. I love. I always love traveling there. So I can't wait to hear your impressions. And I appreciate you uh, the merging of the podcast for today. Well, it's always good to have someone uh, who's inherently skeptical, but in such a good humored way to sort of keep my intellectual adventurism in check. Well put. So I'll be interrogating you, stress testing your ideas today, stress testing your observations. So let's talk about some of the columns that I wrote when I was out there. You've been following the work closely. I appreciate this. Which ones come to mind? All right. Well, you mentioned uh, the Tokyo one. You mentioned this idea that an uh, perhaps an important indicator of what's going on with the Japanese economy is slippage in the quality of the service at restaurants. And I understand, although I've never experienced it myself, that quality service at restaurants is extraordinary just at, at any time in Japan, in Tokyo, but that maybe that's changing a little bit. Well, look, it's long been considered accurately that the quality of service, not just in restaurants, but people notice it in restaurants, in Japan is easily first among the G7. And of course, people love that you're not required to tip. Mm. So you don't feel guilty. No, you don't feel guilty. You don't feel guilty at all. Now, this is something that Izumi Devalier noticed. She's the head of Japan economics at Merrill Lynch Bank of America. She observed over lunch that service is starting to slip subtly. To a foreigner, you're not necessarily going to see it, but it's there if you look for it. And this is part of a broader phenomenon, which is the Japanese labor force is simply running out of people. It's running out of people. Now, before we get to the labor force and before we get to the subtle slippage in the uh, quality of service, real quickly, describe a typical restaurant experience. What would you? What's the experience in a Japanese restaurant in Tokyo that would set it apart from a sort of an equivalently priced dining experience in New York City? Well, for one thing, as soon as you walk in, you're shown to your table, no fuss, no muss. The table is always clean, whether we're talking high-end, mid-end, low-end. The service is super attentive. There are generally several people attending to you. Everything comes right on time, that high degree of attentiveness. And again, no tipping. You know, you mentioned the slippage. Give a little example of what you and your lunch guests noticed and then explain what does this really tell us about the state of the uh, macroeconomy in Japan? Well, it was barely perceptible to me. Azumi Duvalier, uh, our lunch guest, uh, noticed it. 
you're waiting a couple of seconds longer, there seem to be one or two fewer servers for mm. a full restaurant, Tokyo lunchtime, the financial district. Again, if you live there, you know the subtle signs to look for. But look, I don't want to overdo this. Sure, it's sure. part of a broader phenomenon, which is we're really getting to the bottom of the labor market here in Japan. The jobless rate is 2.8%. It's falling. To some extent, the shrinking population has been shielded or obscured by more older people coming into the workforce and more women coming into the workforce. Now, that extra pool is just about depleted. So think the Japanese labor market is potentially facing a shock equivalent to the shock that the economy underwent in the 80s. What happened in the 80s? Ah, the Plaza Accord. The dramatic strengthening of the yen that followed that agreement saw many Japanese companies move operations offshore. And the main obsession between then and now has been, what do we do with our domestic operations? How do we manage it? Now, all of a sudden, this shrinking labor pool means you've got to have a domestic strategy. So what went on in the restaurant that time is just part of a broader piece. We tend to think of Japanese demographics as being deflationary. What if they're not? Right. And I've always wondered this, too, because, you know, we talk about, okay, it's getting older and older and that's deflationary. Uh, But if that means fewer workers and that means a fiercer competition for the pool of available workers, you could imagine uh, the sort of inflationary implications at the same time. Let's uh, let's talk about another country you visited, and I find this very amusing. In the U.S., I would really say with the election, we've really moved from talking about the Fed all the time to politics. But you, what you've observed when you were in China, the Fed is still incredibly important. So I was in Hong Kong uh, ah. at the time of the last uh, Federal Open Market Committee meeting. Uh, in late July. And don't forget, we've been fed this narrative here in the US that America is on the retreat in Asia, its influence is waning, and, you know, it's China's to lose. China's everywhere. But you know what? Being in Hong Kong for the week of the FOMC meeting was illuminative for me. It was all you heard about on TV, not just Bloomberg TV, CNN, BBC, CNBC, Every email that came into your inbox was from an analyst. It all led with the FOMC. Then there was the granular taking a part of the statement afterwards. At barely any point in this three or four day obsession with the Fed was the People's Bank of China mentioned. Hmm. That's China's central bank. So if the US is on retreat and China's dominant, Hang on a second here. Shouldn't there be some discussion of what the People's Bank of China is doing with policy and where it's taking the economy? Something didn't square there. That is uh, that is really fascinating. Now, obviously, there's the fact that the Hong Kong dollar is still pegged to the U.S. dollar. So in a very direct manner, um, you know, they, imp- they as it said, Hong Kong imports our monetary policy. But is it something deeper than that? Well, 
this is a financial center for Asia as a whole. Right. So people are not just talking about what's going on in a couple of streets around Admiralty or Central or Kowloon, where our producer used to hang out. This is what the financial and economic community in Asia was obsessing about. Now, you know, there are differences, sure. We knew a year ago there would be an FOMC meeting at that time. PBOC doesn't publish its schedule. It's also true the PBOC reports to the state council in China. That's the cabinet. So the structure is different. But still, there seemed to be this disconnect. If the US has lost it and China owns it, why obsession with this fairly technocratic American institution? That is very fascinating. I guess it's kind of a relief, uh, you know, if we sort of hold on to this notion of an incredible American influence abroad that at least in this respect, there doesn't seem to be any diminishment. I mean, some people say it might not be a good thing, but kind of bolsters our, uh, you know, our standing a little bit. You know, I asked the uh, budget director of Indonesia um, about this issue, and he kept saying, ah, but you still have the Fed. You still have the Fed. The Fed is still most important because it affects our financial markets what it does to global portfolios affects how much we pay to borrow. Well, it's funny. You, so you mentioned Indonesia and that uh, you also wrote a column about that. And Indonesia strikes me as one of these amazing stories of a country that's grown incredibly in wealth. It's massive. It's one of the most digital countries in terms of the number of people who are on the Internet incredible number of uh, people from Indonesia. But you don't really hear much about it. People don't talk about it as much as, you know, they talk about other Asian countries or other emerging markets. Why is that? You know, it's a great question. I mean, let's walk back a bit here. It is easily, by a country mile, Southeast Asia's largest economy. It is the world's third largest democracy, it is the world's largest Islamic country, and it is a thriving, rambunctious democracy. So what's happened is that for the past 20 years since the Asian financial crisis, which really brought about literally a revolution in Indonesia, the country has been transformed. There's a post-98 set of institutions in place. And by the way, the people making the decisions in government were all personally scarred Hmm. by that experience. I mentioned the budget director. He was on a scholarship to Cornell, had to pack up and go home because his scholarship was denominated in rupees. So when the Asian financial crisis hit, it was uh, academics interrupted. So they're over that now. It's got 34 provinces all of which seriously safeguard uh, the large degree of autonomy that they have. It's got an independent central bank. It's got a debt ceiling. Don't know if that's such a good thing. It's got a budget deficit rule. It could qualify for the Eurozone. All the post-98 institutions are in place. The question I asked myself was, why doesn't the country really want to lead? The ingredients are all there. The runway's there. The fuel's in the plane. Indonesia could unambiguously lead the region if it chose. My sense is it's still looking inward, still trying to figure out in this post-98 world what it wants to be. One of the questions that raises is things like, you know, the role of political Islam. And the New York Times has written a lot about that. 
but it's obscured a lot of other things that are going it's, on. It's interesting because when you talk about these countries that have experienced deep economic scars and how they can last, and you know, so many times people talk about the Bundesbank having the institutional memory of the Weimar hyperinflation and how the degree to which that informs policy decades later. So it's interesting. It sounds like there are some parallels where this country was deeply economic, economically scarred and that, you know, even with it thriving and becoming much richer, that those, you know, those moments don't just fade easily. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the retrospectives done of the Asian financial crisis have tended to be very aggregate or focused on things like uh, currency pegs a good thing. Right. Where is the region in terms of its debt imbalances, et cetera, et cetera. But if you want to see where the region is 20 years later, you've really got to take a look at Indonesia. I mean, they had more than just a recession and a change of government. They had a complete systemic collapse. And it actually looked for a while like the country would literally come apart. In the end, only one province, East Timor, broke away. The rest stayed with the country uh, at the price of much, much greater autonomy. I feel like I have to go to Mal uh, Indonesia because I've been to Malaysia a few times. And on, when last time I was in Malaysia, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's just like, Indonesia is amazing. Jakarta is an amazing city. It really does feel like there is a potential for some fascinating stories that many of us here are probably missing. Well, you know, I lived in Kuala Lumpur for two years during the Asian financial crisis. And for a while there, we were Malaysia had its crisis. It was nothing compared with Indonesia. So for a while there, we were rotating in. And, you know, Indonesia and Malaysia, as you know, compete for supremacy culturally and everything else for like the Malay right. world. But, you know, it, there is a sense of optimism, a sense of freewheeling, a sense that we've remade this country destination, perhaps unknown, but we know what it looks like. Malaysia seems to be going through a funk right now. Yeah. I'm really jealous of your travels. I said at the beginning, but after talking to you about these, you know, sort of three observations, I'm reminded why it's so important to get out of our world here in New York and talk to people uh, in these, uh, you know, different markets. Big picture, what's sort of your big takeaway of things right now, having seen the world uh, for a little while from uh, the opposite side of the planet? My big takeaway, and this gets back to the issue of whether the US is in actual or relative decline versus China. I think the picture is a lot more complicated, a lot more complicated. And, you know, in many ways, uh, the US is still dominant. Is that dominance being challenged? We're talking economics here, sure. not talking about the South China Sea or right, anything right. like that. Is that economic dominance of the US being challenged? Yes. Is China coming up? Yes. Has it supplanted the U.S. economically? Mm, not sure about that, even though that idea is very much in vogue in think tanks here in the Northeast. I'm not sure it's entirely true. Well, uh, Dan, I appreciate you uh, letting and me- And we still uh, got the Fed. And we still got the Fed. That's right. That's the big lesson. We still have the, the Fed and the dollar. Uh, Dan, I appreciate you having me uh, join your podcast to discuss your- columns and travels and i just learned quite a bit joe next time you can steal along in my backpack how about it's, that it's a deal 
Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com and our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute, rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of the show. All you listeners in Hong Kong, Indonesia and Japan, we're expecting to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. And Joe, as odd lots listeners know, you are at... At The Stalwart. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe, former Hong Kong resident. Thanks for listening. <laughs>